Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my very special returning guest, Dan Oliver of Mermican Capital. Dan's encyclopedic knowledge of financial history was the foundation for an absolutely riveting conversation in which he explained where we've been, how we got here, and importantly, where he thinks we're headed. And while it may have made for distinctly uncomfortable listening, the information in this dense, hour-long conversation will, I suspect, prove utterly invaluable. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and Shifts Happen is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, on with the show. Well, Dan, mate, welcome back to the podcast. Last time you joined Bill and I for the Endgame, this time it's just you and me. And it was it was almost a year ago, I think, to the day that we had our first conversation. I think we're a couple of weeks past that. And what an interesting year it's been. It's it's amazing. I mean, I, I, following the credit cycle for so long, and to be actually living through the end stages of it, which is both scary and also fascinating. I was I'm reminded of the Roman historian Pliny the Elder, who was such a scientist that when Vesuvius erupted, he raced to go investigate it, and, and he suffocated. I hope I don't suffer the same fate. But it, it's, <laughs> it, it is sort of an intellectual fascination at the same time, knowing that it's it's a dire situation that, that you know, many people might not survive even, or, or at least their capital might, might not survive. And so navigating is, is very tricky. And, and I, I go back to the idea that, that Churchill and many others have expressed that the, the further back in history you look, the further forward you can see. And yeah. all the things we're seeing today, the, 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 the war, this, the, the collapse of the asset market, stimulus, everything's happened before. And, and you know, one of the things I like to do uh, in my writings, is to find quotations from other times and other places that are, are so different from our world socially, and, and yet they say the exact same things when it comes to money and credit. And, and, and I think that you know, whenever you talk about things happening today, people have their own uh, ideas, their, their own prejudices that they may not know about, and they react in certain ways. But when you talk about these situations in other cultures, you don't have those that baggage, that emotional baggage. So you can actually look at it scientifically and then and then apply those lessons back to our situation which which is what i like to do well it's funny because um you know the point you make is is so true the, the amount of times i read the word unprecedented um <laughs> and it always kind of makes me shake my head and, and causes a wry smile to creep across my lips because as you point out none of this is unprecedented it's quite the opposite in fact but you mentioned the credit cycle there and i think that's a good place to start for this conversation because it's something you've done so much work on. And I think credit cycle to many, many people is a very short-term phenomenon. They're looking at the the kind of the shorter-term credit cycles, um, you know, between recessions, um, 
aligning them to interest rate cycles, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously your work takes a much, much, much bigger view. So let's talk about what a credit cycle means to you and then talk about the credit cycle or cycles you think are currently in play and, and your observations of them. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, I, to reiterate your point, the, the credit cycle, the way people th- commonly think about it is the, there's a recession, the, the, the Fed prints money or eases conditions, there's a big boom, the, 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 they take the punch away, they never actually do, but they're supposed to, things crash. And, and that is certainly part of the cycle, but but you're right. What, what I'm talking about really is the arc of almost civilization, I mean, the arc of how banking systems uh, evolve. And since it's been a year, I don't think I'll bore your audience with going going over my view of, of, of how this works. And again, it's this comes not from theory, the, the way modern economic theories develop, you're looking at models. One of the things I always like to point out to people is that the study of economics through the 19th century was thought to be humanity. So you could look at what happened in Rome and Greece and the Middle Ages and draw lessons out of it because the story is about man and scarcity and, and how you react to that. And then it wasn't until after World War I that it became a quote-unquote science where you had math and models and, and all those things. But, but, but let me dive into it here quickly just to give a summary because I've, you know, your audience has heard this before but they may not remember. And, and that is everywhere you look um, in, in history, the original money is always based on gold and, and the precious metals. Now, I say that it's really liquidity, and, and, and you can look at Carl Menger for these principles. In China, for example, they didn't have any gold and silver, so they used copper. So it d- depends on what's available. And of course, we, we know that in certain exceptional circumstances, cigarettes become money in prisons, for example, or seashells, places like that. But what the market is searching for is liquidity and a way to solve the problem of, I have goods today, I want to trade it with you, you don't have what I want, so you got to give me something that I can then use to go buy something else either in the present or in the future. And, and that's the thing that, that money solves. And you really need a complex society to make that work. So, so, so money begins with, with gold. And, and, and really banks, what banks do is in this first stage of what I call a credit cycle, is they liquefy gold. Gold coins are all different. And for thousands of years, there was a problem because the state would say, okay, this gold coin is worth some certain amount. And so obviously, you, you, if you could clip a little piece off that gold coin, and retain its value, you, you would do it. So there was clipping and shaking. You, you put in a bag and you shake it around and little bits pop off. And, and then you save the bits and, and you make money that way. Uh, and, and so that, that was always a, a problem. And so what the bank's function was is you deposited your gold at a bank. The bank said, yeah, okay, you have X amount of gold in deposit. Here is a note or a deposit account or however they did it that represents the gold. So then you go out in the market and the merchants don't need to worry about the gold content of your coins they can trust the fact that they have access to the gold should they need it. And what always happens is, again, this is all market-driven. This isn't the state. It's the market. Merchants prefer that. They don't want to measure gold coins. It's a pain. And so people prefer to use the paper. And so nobody ever goes against the gold from the bank because why would you? But doing so reduces your liquidity, not your value, but your liquidity. And so that's always the first stage, and that, that's a good thing. And then closely related to that, which is always too complex to actually talk about. I can only write about it it's so complex. But in economies, it's important to remember, every product is the product of a supply chain, right? And the, and the simple example is always the farmer grows the wheat, sells it to the miller, he grinds it up into flour, sells the baker, the baker makes bread, sells it to the consumer. But every product is like that. And some supply chains are really, really long. Like if you look at the supply chain of an iPhone, it'd be tremendously long and complex. Bread is very simple, which is why I make an example. And the problem there is a problem of credit, but I call it commercial credit. It's not the kind of credit 
hey, I want to buy a million dollar house. I don't have money. The bank will lend me the money to buy the house. I don't have it. It's the miller sells the flour to the baker. He wants to reorder flour from the farm, wheat from the farmer, but the baker won't pay him for 30 days because he doesn't sell the bread for 30 days. So what, what does the miller do? And that's the second original function of banks is you take that note on the baker and that bank gives you present money for it. But what's really important to remember in this system, and this again grows absolutely naturally without any state, state interference or influence, is that the bank pays less than the fair value of it because of default risk, because of the, of the time value of money. So it's after transactions already occurred and they pay you less than the amount of money, which the miller accepts because that he wants the ready cash out of to, to reorder and the bank makes a profit through the difference of basically time value of money. And, and so I would say any big empire, country or nation always starts this way. Because to get rich and powerful, to be able to afford an army and conquer people, you need to have a big economy. And, and the way you grow an economy is through free markets and, and basic capitalism, whatever form it, it evolves or whatever you call it. It's the idea of people doing what they're best at doing and be able to trade according to their talents and having a financial system that allows them to do that. And so that, that's sort of pure commercial banking. And then what always happens eventually is that the state gets involved, and that's when you're in trouble. And, and I say, you know, when the state doesn't tell you what a gold coin is worth, there's no Gresham's Law problem, right? I mean, people say, well, what's that right. coin worth? And when the bank is not protected by the state, if the banks aren't lending against bad things, and in other words, the asset side of the bank gets, gets dodgy, people on the liability side, the notes and the deposits run in the bank and say, give me my money back quickly. And so the market shuts those banks down really fast. You don't need a regulator. You just need the market. And you don't have big crashes because you don't, there's no ability for, for the bank system to, to build up big, uh, big amounts of credit. But, but what always happens is the state says, okay, well, we're going to say that this gold coin is worth a certain amount. And we're going to say that the notes of our domestic banks is, is worth a certain amount. And you can pay those in taxes. And you can you pay them to your creditors. And so in other words, it, it subsidizes the value of these liabilities, bank liabilities. And once the banks are free from the market, then they can go start lending against assets. They can, they can give you that mortgage to buy the million dollar house, even though you don't have any money and, and finance it like 90%, right? Because they know that, that no one's going to run in the bank to get their money out because they can use those notes to pay their, their debtors and, and their taxes. And then, of course, in our system, we also have FDIC insurance. So even if you knew that you know Chase, for example, assets were totally crap, which they probably are, you don't really care because if they go down, you know the bank, the, the government's going to bail you out. And, and this is what allows the banks to go from commercial financing, where they're buying uh, uh, things in the market that are already in the market at, at a discount, uh, a transaction occurred, to lending against. Uh, assets, right? So, so you can build ships, even though you have no capital. You can buy houses, even though you have no money. Right? You can do. You can buy stocks and lever them up as the stock goes higher. This is what creates creates the bubble, and it's great when the bubble's happening, right? The prices are going up. Uh, everyone's getting richer. Uh, the state gets lots of taxes because there's so many transactions, capital gains taxes, and all the rest of it. It's really, really wonderful. But the problem is that again, probably the, this is the Austrian business cycle thesis, what I call the credit cycle, is what happens is that when asset prices go up, that signals a scarcity. Right? When, when housing prices double, it tells the market to make the run up. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. 
nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.